Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 31st, 2019. We're up to episode 2371 of the Survival Podcast. And it should be a great one because it's Thursday. That means it's listener calls day. That's where you pick up the phone and call the Think Line at 866-65-THINK. Or you get over to the survivalpodcast.com, mash the contact button, and use a speak pipe. You can send us a message that way as well. And you ask your question or make your point up front, and then give you your details and call from a quiet location, and you're likely to get on the air. Here's what I got for you today. I got a bunch of stuff. Some of it's going to be really quick, so we're going to have a do what I've been trying to do with the feedback, both written and calls lately. More things, less time per thing, more variety, get more to you out of an episode. Here's what we got. A great call on the importance of happiness in your life. And then a little tip for you guys that like the fish stuff that I talk about. And that means the, the tropical tanked fish stuff. Uh, what exactly is a modern renaissance man or polymath? We'll talk about that and some misconceptions I think sometimes people have about the concept. Advice for the first-time owner. And, man, you talk about calls that make a man happy. These three in a row right here, I was like... Just totally ecstatic when I when I listen to these three calls, right? Uh, and you'll see why when we get to the first-time homeowner. Then something I, I know a little about. Uh, um, dealing with hard well water, not such a happy subject. Uh, a question on brining olives at home, I really don't know. So I'm going to just put that out and say a couple of thoughts on it, and maybe some of y'all can help this guy that had a problem trying to brine some olives. Uh, a follow-up on a 1099K thing that I covered earlier this week with tax implications when you're selling on eBay and things like that. Uh, advice for a PDC via online, DVD, etc. And we'll talk some, some, some options that are there. Um, more on dogs, raw foods, and fish in the canine diet. Dr. Kelly answered a question on feeding fish to dogs last week. This caller disagrees with her, and while I respect Dr. Kelly a lot, I'm glad to have her on the expert council, I tend to agree with this caller. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I, and I have some additional thoughts on this. Uh, and then building a business as a photography guide. Interesting side hustle here. So great lineup today. We'll get to all of that more in just a moment. Before we do, I just want to point something out. Tick freaking talk, guys. Tick freaking talk. The clock ticks for us all. January 31st, 2019, the first of 12 months of the year 2019 is gone. Doesn't it feel weird to think about the fact that it really will not be that long? We'll be in the year 2020. 2020. And you know what we'll have then? I've said this before. We'll have a decade we can name again. I grew up, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. Huh? Aughts? Teens? No one refers to a decade anymore, so at least we'll be back into a, a 20 years of no man's land. We'll be back into an actual decade that we can uh, we can talk about again with a common word. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of point it out, man. Life moves; it's always moving. You there is no static in life, and so you either move forward or life moves moves past you. You know, there's we guys say there's no sliding scale in life. Either you're getting more freedom more liberty, more independence in your life, you're getting gaining more knowledge, or life is pushing you backwards. It's up to you. That's a big part of what we do here at the Survival Podcast is encourage that kind of thinking. 
With that, let's go ahead and take first call today. This is a an interesting call on the importance of happiness in your life. Additionally, a little bit of a, a tip on uh, on on aquariums, and that's kind of what spawned the call, believe it or not. And I have some additional info for you if you want it. I'll tell you where you can get it after we listen to the caller, Jason from PA. Hey, Jack. I love the uh, aquarium discussion, even though it's not a survival thing, but it's a happiness thing, and happiness is survival. I just lost a friend, you know, in November because his life didn't have the happiness to keep him going, you know. And so, really, happiness is a very important element of survival, being happy in your life. Um, a little tidbit on the aquariums. When I was a kid, my father would always yell at me to keep changing the filter material. My fish would always die. When I studied marine biology, I realized the filter material really wasn't the filter. It's the bacteria. Um, most of the disposable filter material, like those little inserts on the bio wheel, back of the tank pumps, don't need to be changed. If anything, go to Dollar Tree. You buy the um, plastic green scrubbies, you know, 10 for a buck. Put doors in front of the uh, filter just to catch any hair and big debris. Then all you do is take that media out, rinse it in some cold water to rinse out any debris. It's the bacteria culture that builds on it. The only part of that filter that's actually, like, disposable and needs to be replaced is the activated charcoal, which a lot of times you don't need that if you've got a well-balanced tank. But you can also just buy activated charcoal, put it in a cloth bag, and, you know, drop it in to collect as well. So um, most filter material does not actually have to be replaced. That's the biggest little thing. Once you realize that, your fish do better and you save money. So let's start out with the concept of happiness. I think sometimes people undervalue happiness because they say, well, you know, you can't expect to be happy all the time. I, I completely agree. I, I have actually known people that seem like they're happy all the time, and it's kind of creepy and they're kind of annoying. You know what I'm talking about, the person that's constantly smiling? Like, it was the line in Elf. I like to smile. Smiling's my favorite, right? That, that Like that, you know, and they're just always happy. It's like, geez, dude, and not just a little happy, a lot happy. Dial it down. But what what Jason's talking about here is the ability to find ha general happiness in your life. We all have really good days, really bad days, a lot of in between. But I think it's important to design your life and live your life so that if somebody says, are you generally happy with the way things are in your life, that you can say yes. And that if you're not totally happy, that's good because it gives you something to work for. So the more important question is, are you generally happy with the direction things are going in your life? And there's always, you know, the things out of left field that, that you, you, you know, if you get terminal cancer or something, you, you, you can only find so much happiness in, in whatever time you have left. And, 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 I mean, honestly, the, the good news there is that we're getting closer and closer to being able to survive more and more types of cancer. But there are things that happen where it's not the gravel truck that just takes you out immediately. But other than, than massive things like that that have, you know, their whole own world of grieving and dealing with, if, if it's not catastrophic like that, you should be able to find some happiness and move your life in the general right direction. And this is generally the case with people like Jason's friend that sadly decided to leave us and, and, and leave a lot of pain behind. 
uh, when he did, I'm sure, is that people generally are just not convinced that anything will ever get any better. And if you think about it, if you really think about that, I'm not happy and I don't think anything will ever get any better. It's pretty depressing. In fact, today's, uh, today's picture that goes with the episode is from Office Space. And it's from uh, when Peter is interviewing with the Bobs. And uh, you guys should check. I know a lot of you guys just download the show. You never go by the site. I think you should kind of kind of pay attention to some of the artwork we're using here. Uh, but the Bobs say to Peter in my little meme that I made, so could you walk us through a typical day at the office? And Peter says, well, I don't really work much. I listen to TSPC.co and plan, plan my way out of this place. Um, and so my, my, it's kind of funny how that dovetailed into this call because I think that, you know, that's an example. If you're at a job you hate, maybe you're not going to go off and be an entrepreneur through a side hustle or something like we talk about here, but you're going to find something, some way to better design your life and find, you know, something that's better for you. But there's, the reason I brought it up even is that there is a scene in this movie, and if you've never seen it, it begins with this guy Peter is just, he's just miserable. And, They go to counseling, him and his girlfriend, who's cheating on him. And uh, he says to the psychiatrist that every day gets a little bit worse than the day before. So any day that you see me, I'm literally having the worst day of my life. And this movie was kind of a, 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 a sitcom-ish comedy-type movie. So uh, you know maybe that got brushed over a little bit lightly in the movie. But the doctor goes, wow, that's... That's heavy. And then he hypnotizes them, and that leads... If you've never seen it, you got to see it. We'll just let it go there and tell you it's worth seeing. Um, but that's, I think, how times people people feel. Like, this is the worst day of my life, and tomorrow will be worse. And I, I think that one of the, the most intellectually intelligent things I've heard said on mainstream radio in years was Dennis Prager said something. I was, I was in the car driving, and not my favorite political commentator or anything... Not terrible either, you know, agree, disagree type thing. Um, but he was talking about Christmas, and he wasn't talking about anything political at all. And, and somebody called in and said that they just didn't feel like it was a Merry Christmas this year, didn't feel like Christmas. And he said, you have to make it feel like Christmas. You have to make it a Merry Christmas. One of the things that, that's been done to the American people is that we've been convinced that things just happen, that we should just be happy, that we should just have fun. We, but you have to make that happen. And I think that finding the things in your life that make that happen are important. Not getting lost in them to the point of irresponsibility, but bringing them into your life in a way that brings joy to your life. And, and Jason's right. You know, I'm sitting here and I've been working hard on my, my fish tanks and uh, my plant growth is just phenomenal. And these fish are living in these little worlds and it feels good. It does make me happy to see my angel fish floating around, my big old placo plowing through a forest of water wisteria. It's cool. Now, on Jason's suggestions, yeah, maybe it's a little hard to follow what he's saying. Um, but, yeah, let's talk about, with, with aquariums in general, carbon, activated carbon. I personally feel that the bigger your tank gets, the lower the return of investment you get on carbon. If you use some carbon in, like, a, a, a two-gallon beta tank... Uh, and you're not doing a planted tank and bioactive and all that, it's pretty big bang for the buck, what carbon can do for you. But as you get into bigger and bigger systems, the biology that he was talking about does all the work, and the carbon does what it can very, very quickly and runs out. And I think that carbon and inserts 
as a whole are something the aquarium industry uses to make money. The filter manufacturers use to make money. I just happened to have put out a video last week called uh, Hot Rotting a Cheap Filter on, on YouTube. And I go through exactly how to use, instead of using scrubbies from the dollar store, purpose-built product to do this with using a, a product called Bio Rings, which are ceramic rings, and aquarium sponge. Now, the aquarium sponge may not be as cheap as the scrubbies, um, but it works better. And a, a big box of, of three big sponges is uh, like seven bucks. And I show you exactly how to put all this back together because Jason's right. It's the biology, not the mechanics that do the filtration. And if you use those inserts, every time you pull that insert out, throw it away, and stick a new one in there and feel all good about yourself, well, well guess what? You just took all that bacteria that colonized that insert and threw it away. You have to start growing it again. And all you're getting is mechanical and carbon. And that's one of the reasons they put carbon in there to get by until the bacteria build back up. The next thing is if you're doing planted tanks and you're building up some nutrient for the plants, and especially if you start using some sorts of for, for fertilizer for your plants, um, that carbon is not just taking out the nastiness. It also will take out some of the nutrient that you're putting in there for your plants, so it's counterproductive. So I really don't believe in using carbon unless you're doing a non-planted tank. And then go ahead if you really, really want to. Um, but the more surface area you get, the more bacteria, the healthier. Now, when Jason talked about rinsing it off, this is one place you actually do have to be a little bit careful. Most tap water contains chlorine or chloramine. And I know you're thinking, well, you used to use dechlorinator. Yeah, but it kills the bacteria. It kills the bacteria. So when you clean any filter media, what you really want to do is get like a, a, a small bucket or a pot or a bowl and take some of the water out of your aquarium, because you can do water change anyway, usually when you do this kind of maintenance, take the filter media and stick it in that bowl and clean it with the aquarium water itself, and then discard that water, because it's going to look nasty when you're done. Or if you are on a well like I am, then you don't have chlorine, so you can just use your tap water. But if you use chlorinated water, not only that it can get kind of cause dead pockets of bacteria. One more quick warning before I go to the next thing for you fish keepers. Uh, have a backup power plan for your fish tanks. You might have thousands of dollars in total value in an aquarium, and having it die off on you sucks. The other thing, when you're using any type of canister or over-the-back filter where the water sits in there and it pumps through, and there's maybe you know a half a gallon of water in there when it, at any time, but it's constantly changing, if the power goes out for a long time, let's say over an hour or so, the bacteria in there will start to die. When the power kicks back on, you can flood the tank with dead bacteria, actually spike ammonia and kill fish and plants sometimes, but definitely fish. So that's something to know that if you're gonna, the, the tank's gonna be down for a while, you don't have a generator or whatever, you take those filter, uh, filters and drain them. If, if the media just sits there damp, the bacteria is pretty okay. But if it sits in stagnant water, it can basically flood into your system. And if you if you search for stuff like that on YouTube, you can find some videos. But my video of hot rotting a, a filter is there. And, and if you own a couple tanks, it'll literally save you hundreds of dollars uh, over a couple years easily. Easily. If you own a bunch of tanks, it can save you hundreds of dollars a year in not buying crappy inserts. Because look at it this way. The filter that I did my video on, 
is a $14 filter at PetSmart. $14. If you look at what it is, you can't make that product and turn a profit at $14 a unit. How many of them are you going to sell? And how much does it cost to make it, put it in a box, and ship it? It's a printer, and they're, they're making their money on the ink. Now, I don't have a problem with the business model. I have a problem with the effectiveness. So I'm not like anti, you know, top thinner, anti aqua, because I buy stuff from them other than that. I don't want them to go out of business. I'm not putting that. I'm just saying their business model is predicated on you buying this $5 little insert and sticking it in there every three or four weeks. And if it worked really good, it'd be one thing. But the way I show you works a lot better and costs less. So we do that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Mike from Southern Indiana. Just wanted to comment on something you discussed in an episode last week, the idea of being a renaissance man. Uh, you know, I, I've heard the term but never really given it much thought, but come to think of it, that's exactly what I'm striving to be. Um, just as an example, you know, I, I'm from Southern Indiana. Back home I have a gardening business, uh, and it's taken off. This year I'm rolling out a subscription model, and uh, – Anyways, I'm traveling with a friend, and we were heading down the western slope of Colorado when my 30-year-old Toyota pickup sprung a pretty serious oil leak, and we pushed on. I used to work at a national park in southern Utah, and that's where we were heading for, so we kept putting in a quarter at a time, and we got it to where we were going, and we got some friends to help out. We tore the whole thing apart, replaced the timing belt, the cam and crankshaft gaskets, the water pump seal, uh, new water pump, new pulleys, the whole nine yards. Spent a total of $100 on parts and a couple hundred dollars paying a welder to uh, sure up my motor mount. But, you know, I was just so grateful that I've invested in tools and I've learned how to wrench. And despite the fact that I'm not making a living as a mechanic, I was able to get my truck put back together correctly. And And now I'm on the road again. Uh, I've actually, you know, spent the last two weeks helping a guy that I know in this part of southern Utah build his house. Uh, and he's paid me and helped, you know, it's basically paid for the trip and then some. So just a thought, you know, the idea of being a renaissance man, uh, you know, knowing a lot about, or I, I should say a little bit about a lot of things. You know, it's really starting to uh, come in handy. I'm about 25 and I'm still trying to learn as much as I can and, Anyways, just thought I'd share that, you know, traveling without any sort of unexpected uh, occurrences is not much of an adventure, but this sure as hell has been, in, uh, you know, it's been a big adventure for us, and it's been nothing but fun along the way. So, anyways, thanks for all you do. Uh, I'll look forward to the next show. Thanks. So let's talk about the concept of, of the Renaissance, man, where, where the idea comes from in the first place. Um Kind of the archetype of this is Leonardo da Vinci, because this guy could lay on his back and, and paint beautiful, uh, you know, beautiful artwork, uh, and he could, you know, design weapons of war and speak eloquently and, and, and write backwards and all this stuff, and it was a master, but a master of many things, and so kind of like that would be the ultimate. Renaissance man in some people's minds. And, of course, the period of the Renaissance is when people like that kind of came to be a thing, at least in, in recorded history. But the, the, the concept itself is, is as old as humans. In fact, the very first hunter-gatherers 
had to be what we would call a Renaissance man to survive. Uh, the, the other term for this is a polymath, which just basically means one that excels at many things, one that's good at a lot of things. And early man had to be good at many things. It was civilization that allowed specialization. So if you had a band of hunter-gatherers, there might be a guy that was really the best guy at making spear points. But I bet you everybody in that tribe knew how to make you know, a spear point. There might have been someone that might have been the best tracker, but there was some tracking ability in every single person. There might be one guy that really had it switched on on how to build shelters, but everybody knew how to build a shelter. Uh, pre preparing food, etc. As we went into becoming more of a horticultural society, there were people that, that you know were probably better about being able to grow food than others. And then something happened that is both a wonderful thing and a horrible thing for mankind. The dawn of agriculture created civilizations where there were permanent towns and cities that grew very large beyond the capacity of the land to, to support that many people uh, in any way other than cultivated fields. So kind of the way to really understand how big a deal this is, hunter-gatherer societies, traditional societies that still exist, indigenous people societies, etc., they were generally horticultural. And horticulture means the culture of plants. As societies got bigger and turned into true civilizations, they became agricultural. Agriculture does not mean the culture of plants or food. It means the culture of fields. As this happened, armies rose, governments rose, currency became a thing whether it was gold or silver or certain rocks with a hole in them a certain way, whatever. And being able to do one thing for money and then buy other things led to specialization, where a person that really was a great knife maker could make knives every day, where a person that was really good at tanning hides could tan hides every day. And, and pretty much nothing has changed since then except now it's computer programming and maybe being an auto mechanic or, you know, being a designer or whatever. An architect, right, which we have had architects back then too, but now it's a little bit more advanced. We're using CAD and, you know, steel instead of stone and wood. Uh, but that's basically the way we became a specialized type of person versus a general knowledge type of person. And... So once you understand that, you kind of understand the value of becoming good at a lot of things. But then the next thing is, there's a, the misconception is the, the, the phrase that came out of Poor Richard's Almanac from Benjamin Franklin, a master of all, of all trades, and a, uh, no, I'm sorry, a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. I think that if you are truly the kind of person that you would call a modern renaissance man, a polymath, that is something I strive to be. You are a jack of, of many trades, because no one is really a jack of all trades, and a master of some. There are some things that you're truly exceptional at, and many things that you're very good at, and many more things that you're good at, and even more things that you at least have knowledge about. And I, I think that there is so much advantage to this in working with people, negotiating, etc. Because having the broad knowledge 
in addition to the broad skill set, allowed me when I was in sales that when I, when I would have the opportunity to speak to somebody, instead of it all being about buy my shit, I could talk to them and understand something that was important in their life. And if, if I knew just a little bit about it so that I could have an intelligent conversation, I could get them doing most of the talking. And you want to win somebody over, get them to do most of the talking, get them to laugh, and get them to feel like they know who you are. You do that, you got people won over. You have, now I'm not saying, you know, you can, you can become a, a slick televangelist and make millions of dollars like whatever that crazy dude is that slaps me with his coat. Um, you know, having some kind of like uh, amazing power to just be charismatic. What I'm just saying is when you have that interaction with somebody, then you have a relationship that you can work with. And what, just a little sales tip here at the end of this segment. If you can get somebody to talk about their life, laugh, and tell you why they think what you have is good, they're going to buy it. If they can say, well, this is going to save us money or whatever, and they've done those other things, you have a sale. Unless you screw it up, man, just saying. But I think that that would be the biggest goal that I've been trying to get people to establish for themselves Become a jack of many trades, a master of some, and a knower of as much as possible. That, that to me, is a polymath or a true modern renaissance man, because we're not all going to be Leonardo da Vinci's. But we can be a da Vinci at a few things. At a few things. I can't paint. I can't paint. We talked about aquariums for a bit. I think one of the reasons I love aquariums is because I can actually do artistic expression with hardscapes and plants and different fish species and the way water flows. Since I can't paint, I write, I build fish tanks, and I speak. Find that in your life, and then we'll hook all the way back to Jason's first point in the first call, and then you'll find a way to be genuinely, generally happy with your life. And I did mean both. Genuinely, generally happy with your life. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Aaron from upstate New York here. Question. Wednesday, we are closing on our first home for cash. What advice and tips would you give a first-time home buyer? In general, as well as specifically, setting up buy-at-once items that every homeowner should have. Your show has greatly enhanced my life and continues to do so. I regularly tell people about your show. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Well, it, that, first of all, when I said that the first three calls made me happy, this one was like, I wish it was the fourth one because it was like a Grand Slam home run. The words, I'm closing on my first house and we're paying cash from a member of my audience is like, oh, somebody just handed me a $250 bottle of scotch. I mean, my genuinely, generally happy with today when I get a call that says, I have this problem, I'm going to have this house with no payment on it, and I need to know how to take care of it. That's the kind of problem I like to hear about. Next, the reason I love this call is it actually has me thinking that probably it would make sense to do a show called The Prepared Homeowner. Like a whole episode that says, like, basically, if you're going to own a home, And, and, you know, let's skip food storage and gardening and, you know, the, 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 the higher level of energy preparedness as far as backup power generators. But just like, I now own a house. I never owned a house before. Like, what do I really got to have? You, you know, it's funny. Sometimes you see people like, I have to buy a lawnmower? 
You know, I have to buy a refrigerator, a lawnmower, and a washing machine, and a dryer? You know, if you've rented your whole life, and specifically if you've rented apartments, you know, those are things you generally don't buy. And I think a lot of people are shocked when they find out generally, even though people tend to leave a lot of appliances, they often take the refrigerator, and those things are expensive, and that's why they take them with them. I think most people, when they, when they sell a house... Um, they'll take a refrigerator even if they're not going to use it in their new kitchen because it doesn't match or whatever because they're going to stick it out in the garage or whatever because everybody likes a second fridge. Uh, so, like, you know, just little stuff like that. But here's kind of where I'll go with as a, as a shorter segment versus a whole show. Number one, you do really need to have a good set of hand tools. You know, and I'm talking, you know, pliers, uh, wrenches, ratchets, screwdrivers, Etc. You don't need to go out and find somebody with a snap-on van and spend $10,000 on $200 worth of tools. By the way, I will never buy a damn thing from Snap-on. I think they're, the, the, yeah, they're pretty. Biggest rip-off in tools, the end, infinity. You own it, you're proud of it, good. You know what? I, I bet you I could find some shit to sell you for too much money, too, then, because you're the kind of person that buys something out of ego alone. It There is no way that a 916th wrench works any better with the name Snap on it than the name freaking, you know, uh, uh, Craftsman on it. I'm sorry. It, it just doesn't. Um, for hand tools, you can do worse than Craftsman, definitely. You can also do worse than uh, Lowe's kind of brand of choice, Cobalt. Cobalt for the, you know, again, we're talking about general homeowner tools here, not professional mechanic. Um, next, I would say one of the biggest things that you can do when you get into your new home, is learn about everything in the home. This is more of a, of a notebook thing um, than a go-out-and-buy-stuff thing. So where's the, where's the fuse box? Are, are all of the switches in the fuse box labeled? If they're not, one of the best things you can do when you move into your house is plug something into every outlet with a light bulb on it or something so you can tell, and, and, and start flipping switches. Flip this one off. Click. What went off? Okay. And, and label that shit in the box. Because most of them they're not. And a lot of times when you move in a house, the person tried to do it and it's wrong. That's, a, that's an important. Where, where do you shut the water off? If like a pipe breaks or something. How, how does that work? That's important, you know. Um, all, all, just basic the functioning of the home. And if something breaks, who would you call? A lot of times, you know, you go look at your air conditioning unit or your thermostat or whatever, and there'll be a sticker on there of whoever installed it. That's a good thing. If there's not, you know, it is, it is not a good idea to try to figure out who to call because your air conditioner broke in, in the, the, the heat of the summer or because the heater's not working in the middle of the winter. So uh, additionally, I, I do think that I, I honestly feel that every homeowner in America should own at least a mid-grade generator. You know, something like a, a Troy built or something from Lowe's. Um, I have one. It's, God, we bought it when I moved to Arkansas. And it still starts with like one to two pulls. And that's because we did a little bit of Renaissance Man, do some maintenance on, change the oil, and blah, 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 right? But just, I mean, a generator is probably one of the most valuable things a homeowner can have. A set of extension cords and splitters put away so that if power goes off, I've got power. I don't lose thousands of dollars worth of food. Uh, I don't sweat to death, et cetera. Back where you live, up north, a backup heating source. 
Uh, I would look at some kerosene heaters. I think that's probably your best bang for the buck. And where you live, you won't have any trouble getting your hands on kerosene unless New York made it illegal or something. Uh, and then I don't know about it yet. But functionality of the home, uh, and then try to scale into things. Don't try to do it all at once. Like there's no need for you to go buy a lawnmower when there's like 87 inches of snow in your backyard right now. So you can take your time figuring that thing out. But I'd, I'd get a hold of some backup heat like really, really soon. And think about how you want to lay your house out, how you want to organize things. Shelving in your garage, if you have a garage, is just so... The first thing I did when we moved into this place, we have these big, beautiful outbuildings here. Uh, there's an 1,800-square-foot, three-bay shop just off the side of the house. And the shelving was just ricky, ratty, crappy shelving that the guy built into it. And uh, the first thing I did, because there was a decent framework to it, was just make it all usable. That was the first, before I put a damn thing on one, because it did kind of sort of work. I went through it, put good plywood on it, shored things up, put supports in it, and made all that shelving usable. And so then, then that way, you know, this is where the Christmas crap goes. This is where the fishing stuff goes. This is, and you do that, and your life is a lot easier. The other thing is, I'm very proud to hear anybody from the Sawyers pay cash for a house. I would pretend to yourself, I would say, self, you have a mortgage payment to make. Now, of course, you have your taxes and your insurance. Oh, insurance. Just because you don't have to have homeowner's insurance without a mortgage, you get your ass some homeowner's insurance in case your house burns down, gets flooded, gets you know destroyed in a storm, something like that. Um, but I want you to pretend that you have a house payment, a couple hundred bucks a month, and open up a new bank account. You can do it in your same bank. Most banks now, if you do online banking, adding a new account under your name is as simple as add an account. Set that account up and put 200 250 bucks a month in that account. You don't have to do that forever, but do it until there's a couple, 3,000 bucks in that account, and that's just the house had a problem account. That's all that money's for. It's just extra money. Now, if, if somebody needs to get bailed out of jail or something or there's an emergency, with, you, know, you can go get it. But since you don't have a house, build up a little reserve so that when you need something for the house. That's about as far as I'm going to go today. But congratulations on this. And really, I think the most valuable thing a new homeowner can do is walk the whole house with a notebook, learn how everything works, where everything is, who you'd call if something breaks, and then go slow from there. In the end, it's just living, and you know, 330 million of us do it all the time So in this country alone. So you'll be all right with it, and congratulations. Let's take another one. Uh, hi there, Jack. This is Nick up in British Columbia. Uh, got a question about dealing with uh, hard well water um, details. We've had a uh, put our well in last year, and our typically we have a lot of rainfall. Uh, surface water usually has a pH of five, but our well we have a lot of uh, sorry calcium and manganese in the winter and in the summer we have some sulfur, and uh, we get a lot of deposits on the water, and it smells bad in the summer. Uh, it's safe to drink, but. Um, just wondering if there's anything to deal with that. Nobody in our area has much experience with that. Anyway, thank you very much. Take care. Well, I have an answer, but I don't know if you're going to like it. You need to call the Culligan man. And, and that's not necessarily an endorsement of Culligan as a brand, but you need a water softener. And if you don't get one, uh, it will destroy the plumbing in your home over time. 
Uh, you'll find your water running slower and slower. It will ruin water heaters. It will ruin washing machines. It will ruin ice makers. It will ruin things. And a water softener, there's also a thing called an iron breaker that can be part of that system. And it will help with, I don't know why it's iron that does it, but it will help with the sulfur stink that you get sometimes with, with water like that. Um, there's another issue, too, when you're on a well with really hard water. Sometimes you get that sulfur smell and all. A lot of times, if you don't use or run water for a while, that smell will get a lot stronger. Uh, so if you have a bathroom where you don't, Like you have, let's say, two bathrooms in a home, even with a water softener when you have water like this. Trust me, I know. Nick Ferguson refers to the water at my home, even with a water softener, is liquid calcium. Um, but it, it can develop more of that smell that you're talking about. So if you have like a two-bathroom ba two home, and let's say you're single, so it's like a guest bathroom and nobody really uses that shower much, You know, once every couple of weeks, go in there, turn the, the water on, both the hot and the cold water, and just run it for a few moments and, and purge enough to purge those pipes out. Uh, that'll go a long way toward avoiding uh, that smell. Um, I have certain legs of my outdoor water system that doesn't go through the water softener. And um, that's a totally different thing there. I mean... <laughs> What ends up happening there is like you might have like months go by without opening a hose bib, and that whole leg in that pipe of water has just sat there. And when you open that up, it's it's really bad. So definitely get some flow. Don't have a lot more to add to this, but if you have really hard water, you need to invest in a water softener. While you won't really feel great about writing the check up front, it will save you money long term. It will make your water taste better, and everything in your home will last longer. Uh, like I said, it will jack things up. And so I recommend that you find out who in your area uh, you can get a water softener system from and get it installed, and uh, keep an eye on it. That's one of those things about, about, you know, you got a new home. If you have a water softener, you need to regularly check, make sure everything's working with it. And make sure it doesn't run out of salt. You'll have a big tank. You'll put either salt that looks like rock salt or pellets. I like the pellets better. They seem to work better, last longer, and not have as many issues. Um, but if that runs out of salt because you just forgot about it and you're not doing anything anymore, you need that salt in there. Uh, it, that, it lasts a long time, and it's not a real big expense to put salt in there. Uh, but kind of putting it on a schedule and at least putting the schedule once in a while to open the salt tank and look in. And if it's not using any salt, like the level's not going down, it could be what happened to me. All of a sudden the system stopped siphoning water back and forth out of the salt tank, and all of a sudden our water was hard again, and we were having issues with it, and uh, that's what was going on. So uh, definitely look into a water softener. If anybody has any other solutions, let me know, but, I mean, I don't really know another one. Next up, we have a question I also don't really have an answer for. I'm brining olives. Jack, this is Zach from East Texas. I just had a quick question on brining olives. I've got a olive tree I planted last year, and I actually got uh, some olives off of it, tried to brine them based on a recipe I found online, and ended up with a bunch of moldy olives. So... I don't know what I did wrong, but maybe uh, if you have any insight or knowledge about it, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. 
Well, I, I found an article for you on doing this uh, from some folks who live in California and do it all the time, and they say it's stupid easy. But they go into a lot of detail about exactly what to do and when to do it and changing the brine out and all that. So maybe just following that article will help you. If anybody out there has ever brined olives and had this problem and figured out what made their olives turn moldy, then let us know in the comment section or give us a call or shoot me an email. We'll put it on the air. Because uh, I don't know. I've never done this, so I'm really not sure. Now, but I will also say this. Sometimes people try something. And it don't work. And there could be a hundred things that caused it to not work. And usually the best thing to do is just try it again. Especially if it's not a big risk thing to do. If it's not a huge, you know, like you're not going to go bankrupt over it or something like that. You're not going to lose a kidney over it. Try it again. Because it could just be that maybe there was some kind of weird mold that had pre-contaminated those olives that generally isn't there. I mean... Who, who knows? Maybe you, you thought you added a certain amount of salt and you didn't. It, it, there's always a possibility that you think you did exactly what, let's say, the instructions say and you didn't. Or there was some weird thing that occurred when you did this that ju doesn't generally normally happen and it just happened to be the first time. So uh, check this article out. Like I said, it's very in-depth. And one of the things I actually say is to put a slice in the olive at the beginning and to quickly get it into the brine. And that sounded really important, so you can check into that. But I'd love to hear from anybody that does this. Uh, I have tried to grow olive trees here, and all I have done is kill olive trees because it gets too cold. I know they say a BQ of olives will survive here. Maybe someday I'll figure out how to do it, but I'm done killing trees to try to grow something just because it's not supposed to grow here, and I want to prove I can do it. Uh, let's take another one, this one on some tax issues, and I'm going to play it, and then I'm going to give you a warning to go with it. Hi, Jack. This is JC from Kansas. Uh, comment on episode 2368 on the uh, 1099 side hustle question, uh, uh, selling things on eBay specifically. Um, I run a side business, uh, it's JC Custom Slings, on your business directory. Um, and uh, the benchmark or the threshold of uh, $10,000 on eBay getting a 1099, it hit that a couple years ago. Um, haven't done it since, but... Uh, One way around that, as the caller was asking about that, that I've discovered is uh, open two eBay accounts. And you only get a 1099 for $10,000 on a single account or a single PayPal account. Open two of them. You can do two at $5,000, two at $6,000, two at $7,000, and no tax forms sent. That's all. Have a good day. Hope this helps everyone. Take care and love what you're doing with the show. Thank you. Bye. Okay, I I have a couple of things to say about this that are, you know, you probably shouldn't be thinking this way type things. Number one is, as far as I know, when you open a PayPal account, I'm not sure about eBay, but when you open a PayPal account and you set that up, you have to give them your tax ID number. And you can't open another account with the same tax ID number. You can open another account, but then you would have to have like an EIN or have a spouse do it. And you may get away with that. Now, eBay, I don't really know. I know to be a buyer, you don't have to give them jack diddly crap. But as a seller, especially after a certain amount, I'm sure they require a tax ID number or what we call a social security number. Um, but this is the thing here. 
If you don't get a 1099 from a place, that does not mean you do not have to pay taxes on the money that you've earned. By the letter of the law, if you go mow the lawn for the next-door neighbor every week and he pays you 50 bucks throughout the summer and you made a 1000 bucks last year doing that, um, you're supposed to tell them you did that and pay the money. No one does, and that's pretty safe that you're not going to have to worry about it. It is most likely the case that if you've received money into an account like a PayPal account or something like that um, and you do not get a 1099 against it and you don't report it, that you probably, with a giant P and giant air quotes, will not ever hear anything about it and you will probably be fine. However, if you trigger something that causes the IRS to look at you more deeply, they can see right into your bank accounts, etc., Yes, they can. And if you get audited, then they can say, well, we want to see this, we want to see that. And you can have an attorney that says, well, they can and can't do. But the IRS probably has more power and authority to do shit that law enforcement, which is they're tax collecting, so they say they're not law enforcement, but that law enforcement, which is you're enforcing a tax law, um, should not be able to do. They can do a lot. If you had, let's say, you were going to go over $10,000 and you use this little thing and you made like, let's say, seven grand in one account and five grand in the other, $12,000 you didn't report. And something happens to where they don't figure it out for four or five years. They will rape you with taxes and fees and interest, etc. And they will threaten you so that you will let them rape you with potentially putting you in jail for tax evasion which over that amount of money they probably would never do because they want their money. They're upgrade. They want the money. If you're in the pen, they're not getting their money. But they will strong-arm you. They will seize your assets. If you want to make money that you don't pay taxes on, then you need to do it, if you're going to do it at all, with barter or cash or something without any paper. If it's on paper, it exists and it can be found. Now, like I said, people that make a hundred grand a year or less have a, a very, very unlikely uh, chance of being audited, especially if you're employed. But it doesn't mean that it can't happen. And you never know, you know, if the country starts having problems. The, one of the first things that governments do when they start having economic issues is they implement capital controls, and they start putting everybody under the microscope, and they start saying, "Where can we get money?" Now, it's never really occurred in the United States. It's more of a you know banana republic type problem, but it uh, it does happen. Governments do do it, and it's not, I'm not going to say that it ever couldn't happen. So, if you're making significant income that you're receiving into some type of paper trail account, then you need to do more to focus on the part of the tax code that tells you how to avoid paying the taxes than to hide the reporting. Now, a person that you know makes a few hundred bucks from his buddies and some of them pay him in PayPal, you probably have zero to worry about. But if you're running online business, um, yeah, sooner or later it could pop up. They can find out. And they may never, but if they do, they will rape your ass. Please understand that. Please be careful with ideas like this. Uh, let's take another one. This one on permaculture. Hey, Jack. This is Rose from Tacoma, Washington. I had a question for you about permaculture design courses. What course that is just online or DVD do you recommend to take to learn more about the permaculture design principles and mechanisms? 
some details. Uh, I have a six-month-old and a toddler, and I'm also active Army, so I cannot go to a PDC in person like I would want to. But I'm wanting to have a PDC so that I can learn more about these things. I've been watching your permaculture series on YouTube, and it's got me really interested and want to learn some more. Thanks. Um, I'll tell you, I think that the best one that's ever been done is Jeff Lawton's, and I, I think he releases it, and then it's not available, and he releases it again, and I'm I'm not sure when he has another one planned for release or if one is available, um, but his website um, is 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 just fa fantastic without it. It, it doesn't matter. Um, it's... Uh, The website is jefflawtononline.com, and he spells Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, -F, not J-E-F-F, -F, jefflawtononline.com, and it's uh, called the Permaculture Circle. And he has 70 videos, a 24-7 online community, and a bunch of PDFs available, and it's all free. And I would start there. That's where I would go first. I would consume all of that material without spending a dime to figure out what it is you want to do, what you will gain and maybe not gain from a PDC. The next thing is I'll give you another resource that will be a little bit more difficult to consume because it's the rantings of a, of a, a true genius, Bill Mollison, Permaculture's founder. There's a company called Barking Frogs Permaculture. And Bill came in the 90s, I think it was the early 90s, and did a lecture, a series of lectures at their facility. And they transcribed those into a PDF, 155 pages of, of Bill Mollison lecturing when Bill was still in his prime. And it, it can be difficult at times to consume because it's the way he talks, which is kind of just one thing after the next. But it will give you hundreds of ideas of what you can do and what you want to do and what makes sense for you. And I would start with those two free resources first. Next up, I'm going to say that over the years, I've done three PDCs. I've taught in several. And I have come to the conclusion that it may not be the best thing for the most people. I think it's wonderful for anybody that does it, but... I do think that there is a hole in, in, in the PDC between what it is and what the student expects it to be. I want to design my backyard. I'm going to go take a PDC. And we're learning about desert landforms in a PDC. It's just one example. I think, and there's been stabs at this, I think, though, there is a real need, a real need, for a course that is specific to people managing about a half of an acre. It's almost, we, there's urban permaculture is what this has been called. I think what we need is a zone one permaculture course. That that's just, it's all that it is. You could under, maybe just get the quick overview. There's a two, a three, a four, and a five. But let's just drill down on exactly how to design zone one. Because everybody gets excited and runs out to two and three and four, and all the real heart of everything 
is, is kind of that zone one thing. And I don't really know of anything like that. The best resource to get that kind of thinking in your mind is the Urban Permaculture DVD from Jeff Lawton that over copyright disputes is not available. It is on DTube. I will find it again and put a link in the show notes. Sometimes DTube works, sometimes it doesn't seem to work real well. I do have a copy of it. I'm trying to figure out where I can upload it to, where it will always work, but it won't get taken down. Um, but I do have a copy of it in MP4. It's way too big to email. Um, I think the copyright dispute is because of a greedy producer who has no understanding of how things actually work in the real world. But I just think that anywhere that has been put up, it's been taken down. Not because Jeff wants it taken down, because the guy wants his cut and he's not getting it type thing. Um, but I would dig deep into JeffLawtonOnline.com. There's, again, 70 videos there. And I would just start designing what you want. The PDC is two things. It is a credential. It says to other people, I have been formally trained for at least 80 hours in a manner consistent with what the, the PRI of Australia says. Or it doesn't mean that because somebody else made up their own shit. It all depends. You have to find out where they got that. It is useful if you want to design for others. It is useful if you want to teach. Then the other side of it. It will fundamentally change the way you look at the world. It will fundamentally change the way you operate as a systems thinker. And it will indoctrinate you in a, in a very positive way, I mean that phrase, into the permaculture mindset. Having been part of creating online PDCs, having been you know, a student of Jeff's, which I think is the best one. It's better than the one we tried to do. I tried to make ours better. He beat my head, and I'm just going to say it. Um, it's still not the same as, as going to one. And I know you say you can't, and maybe right now you can't, but I mean, the goal would be to do a two-week course. I don't like – I understand why it's done. But I don't like the whole we meet every weekend for a year and a half to do a PDC. I don't think that's really actually I, – I think if you're going to do that, you might as well do something online. You, you really might as well do something online because what makes those you know, 80-hour courses really work is being surrounded with everybody else. Now, the good news. I think you can do this Zone 1 type course in five days. I want very much to be that guy and to do this and to make this happen because I feel it is a gaping hole in the permaculture education system. However, I also have learned my limits and do one thing really well. That's this podcast. And I can't be that guy. I might be able to be a piece of a team But I can't be the main thing there. So we need a gifted instructor to do something like that that has the time and the inclination to do it. And what I've seen is that most people that make their living with permaculture, the main reason they do PDCs is because it pays well. And, mo and I've talked about this before. Most of them are living off PDCs. You know, Maybe they do two or three big ones a year, and that is how they survive. They don't get enough design work to pay all their bills. And smaller courses, and I understand, because when I run a workshop here, 
for four days. It it would be really not that hard logistically. I'd probably end up divorced if I tried to do it. But to make that go a week and a half, all the real work is in getting geared up for it to happen in the first place. Once it's in motion, keeping it going is a lot easier than getting it going. So by running longer courses, you can charge more money for, I, I get why they do that. But I think we really need a fundamentally organized course. This is how you design a backyard. And that course needs to be like, this is how we're going to design it. We're going to take this backyard and we're going to design this backyard together. We're going to design this for somebody that has four, just the same freaking yard over and over. It's in Florida. Well, now it moved to, to, to Texas. Now it moved to Pennsylvania. Now the, the, now we're going to rotate it 180 degrees and the solar aspect has changed. Now the family has four hours a week to work on the outside property and maintain everything. Now the family has two hours. Now the family's really, really motivated. Now it's a semi-retired couple. They have a lot of time, but they can only do so much physical work. And I think like over and over, and I think that is the way to teach this mindset. I'm, I'm just really not sure that I have the, the bandwidth to pull it off, but that's That's what I think more of you need than the conventional PDC. Who knows? Maybe I'll talk to Jeff about something like that and developing some kind of coursework like that. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Tracy from Florida, and I am calling with feedback to Expert Counsel Episode 2363, specifically the question to Doc Kelly and supplementing a dog's diet with fish. I feel a few points need to be brought up. First off, I am no vet, nor do I consider myself an expert. However, I have spent the last five plus years doing extensive research on the canine diet, and I choose to feed my dogs a very well-balanced, raw diet. Anyone looking to better their best friend's diet should do their own research and decide what they feel is best. With that being said, my research has shown me that raw fish is an amazing supplement, and it will continue to be in my dog's bowl. Oily fish like mackerel, sardines, salmon, trout are rich in essential fatty acids. I do agree with Doc Kelly that fish should not be the only protein source as dogs are not all get carnivores and need variety. However, it was disappointing to hear the caller's effort to feed his dog a more natural diet while improving his self-reliance be met with the advice to instead feed a commercial processed kibble, a.k.a. cereal. A simple solution could be deep freezing the fresh catch. Multiple sources suggest freezing the fish for 24 plus hours to kill any possible parasites. Also, research has proved that a strong immune system will fight off any, any uninvited guests like parasites before they can do any harm. People are paranoid over parasites and bacteria, yet we've been eating fish for thousands of years. You ever heard of sushi? Thanks, Jack. You know, I never really want to completely disagree with any of my council members. And I am also not a, a DVM. And I think vets are amazing. We just we have an amazing vet that takes care of my animals. And they went out of their way for us just yesterday with a problem with one of our cats. It ended up not being a problem, but they, they still really did. And, you know, we wouldn't even be able to figure out that it wasn't really a problem without them. And, I, you know, there, there's things that I would rely on a medical professional for for myself and a medical professional for for my animals. Nutrition, much like MDs, I don't feel that veterinarians probably get the best education on canine and feline nutrition. 
And I think, the, and they probably do spend more time at least being taught about it. But what are they being taught, and what is the source of the information? The education system is rife with the potential for the abuse by anybody with money, because the entire education system runs off donations, and you know we're going to put a wing in over here, and this company wrote a check and put their name on it. And research gets done by people that have money, and there's not a lot of money selling raw salmon to people that want to feed it to their dogs. But there is a lot of money selling dog food to people that want to feed food to their dogs. So I think that the educational side of that gets clouded with that money. So here's kind of what I was thinking when I and I just I had one of those weeks last week where I, I couldn't really go any longer than I did on the on the on the uh, expert council show. I needed to get it done. Um, so I didn't bring this up then. So I'm so glad that, that, that Tracy called. Because here's one of the things I'm going to say about this. In Alaska, where they use dogs to pull sleds across hundreds of miles of tundra, the main food that, that, that uh, team owners feed to their dog teams is salmon. Now, they generally do cook it. They boil it. They boil the crap out of it to where it's really, really soft, and they boil everything, head, guts, eyes. But I have seen enough documentaries on sled teams to know that those dogs live, at least for part of the year, almost exclusively on salmon. Because think about feed. If you own two teams of dogs that have to be very well fed, have lots of energy, uh, it can get very expensive. Well, you know, in Alaska, certain parts of it, salmon is the easiest cheapest and most reliable source of protein that you can get your hands on. So dogs do well on salmon, on the raw thing. This is my rule for raw fish if you're worried about parasites. Would you make, she said it right there at the end, I was waiting for it, and she said it, would you make sushi out of it? If you would make sushi out of it, you can feed it to your dog raw. I, I'm sorry, that's my opinion. Um, and most salmon in America is safe for making sushi. You don't want to do sushi, sashimi, etc. with freshwater fish. There's an entirely different type of parasite that's, that you can run into in freshwater uh, fish versus saltwater fish. And the, the fish has to be handled right, etc. But the reality is some of the things that people worry about with saltwater fish, as far as whether it's sushi grade or not, they then take that piece of fish and they cook that piece of fish And the only way to actually alleviate the concern would be to cook the fish to a point where it would be inedible. The, the, the temperature and time necessary to be 100% sure, uh, or even really significantly matter, would be a temperature that no chef would ever prepare that fish at. So in general, saltwater fish, I mean, go to New York City, and there's a sushi place every half block, And there's a list a mile long of raw fish that you can order and sit down and eat. And I'm going to put it to you this way. One of the things that's fed to a lot of dogs on raw food diet is chicken. And if you eat raw chicken, you're going to get sick and die. And your dog doesn't. Dogs can handle things that humans cannot. So that's another concern there. And I'll, I've mentioned this person before. I'll see if I can find her book again. Uh, back when I was going, I did do some schooling for alternative health at one point in my life. And I met a woman in, a, uh, in that endeavor named Lou Olson, who had done her Ph.D. on canine nutrition. And her number one thing she advocated was raw chicken. Oh, chicken bones. And she's like, no, not unless you cook it. Then you got a problem with the bones. 
So I am very much pro your choice for your dogs, however you want to do it, whatever works for your lifestyle, etc. We do not feed our dogs an exclusively raw food diet. We do feed them a prepared uh, food diet because it's convenient and it works. They also get a lot of raw food. They get a lot of raw food, and they get a lot of raw eggs. And when I feed them eggs as from the quail, I feed them, I throw them whole quail eggs raw. They eat the shell, everything right down. And I think it's a big part of why they're so healthy. So I agree with Tracy, and I understand why a doctor of veterinary medicine would make the recommendations that Dr. Kelly did. And I think this is the, the, the upside of this. Really good, high-quality, prepared dog food and a raw food diet are both good ways to take care of dogs. If I had the time and didn't own three giant animals where it would get somewhat expensive and all, I, I think you're better off with a raw food diet and raw meat, obviously. Um, dogs don't eat vegetables. They don't. Uh, some will, but I'm saying like wild canines don't eat vegetables. Coyotes, uh, wolves, etc., they live mostly on small mammals. That's mostly what they live on. And they certainly will scavenge, like, you know, when the grizzlies uh, go salmon fishing, they, they often, often, because they get really good at it, they will eat kind of the choicest, best pieces and just get another salmon. And, and, and wolves, et cetera, will, you know, certainly go in and take it and feed on that. And, you know, I've seen some diseased coyotes. But when you, when you trap or shoot a coyote in, in optimum health, There's a reason people use their pelts. They're beautiful. And I don't think anything expresses the health of a canine more than its eyes and its fur you look, and its form. You look at eyes, fur, uh, uh, fur, and form. So I'm talking about body shape. And you can tell a healthy animal. Yeah, I know gums and teeth and all. You can check that out. But generally speaking, you see a dog that's got healthy, shiny fur, good form, and bright, clear eyes, you've got a healthy dog. You really do. And I think a lot of things like lipomas and stuff like that are aggravated by feeding a dog a corn diet. So, anyway, uh, I, I completely agree with Tracy, and I understand Dr. Kelly's recommendation. And I'm really glad that uh, that Tracy called in, and I got, I got reminded to talk about this. One more today on building a guide business. Not the hunting guide kind, the photography guide kind. Hey, Jack, what advice would you have for someone who wants to practice preparedness but lives kind of on the go right now? I'm 20 years old. I'm doing guide work in Alaska in the summers, and I'm trying to break into doing trip videography for people year-round. So, uh, so far, I've, I got back on social media at Ken the Guide, and I'm trying to get my finances in order and just build some useful skill sets, I guess. But I just wanted to know what your take on this is and if you have any specific advice for me. Thanks. So, I, I think... One of the really big takeaways here, and I want to even talk, I want to talk a little bit about the side hustle more and I want to talk about the actual question. Because the question isn't how do I build my business? The question is how do I practice preparedness while I'm running kind of this, this, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, kind of like a migrant business. Like, you know, I go here, then I go there, then I go here, then I go there, and I take people with me. Um, we practice preparedness as it matches our life. So the person that kind of always lives in the same place, you know, they're going to store food and stuff like that. Your preparedness needs to be making sure that you can take care of yourself and take care of your clients when you're doing these trips. So it's it's going to be heavily wrapped up in the vehicle uh, preparedness. 
Uh, I would say it might be a really good idea for you to go back and listen to uh, the interviews I've done with Jessica Mills on, on long-distance trail hiking. Because those types of preparedness are, are the things that you need to be the focus the most on. Financial management, etc. as well. Um, so I think lifestyle design is where you're at with this. So how do you design your life? See, So let, let's kind of redefine what preparedness means. Preparedness doesn't mean I have a whole shitload of MREs and guns. I think most of this audience has figured that out long ago. That's not what we teach. Preparedness is designing your lifestyle so that the way you want to live and the way you choose to live is resilient and you can reset back to that point after something goes wrong as quickly and painlessly as possible. That doesn't always mean immediate and that doesn't always mean absent any pain. The kind of work you do, if you broke a leg, it would be an encumbrance to that. Um, so I think like one of the biggest things that you can do to build resilience into your life now is to build such. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get my way to talking about this side hustle here, right? Or this business here um, is to build such strong marketing that you always have business. That see that to me is the most. If you're gonna be a business owner. The most important preparedness thing you can do up front is to build the business to a level of strength that the business is never going to go away unless you decide you want it to. So that would be number one. How do we build resiliency into that business? And how do we design things so that you know we can take care of all of our survival needs when we're on the road? Um, and, and, and that's that's really kind of the, the best advice because you're not real specific here now. He did call in again and say he doesn't live in Alaska. He travels there for a period of time during the year. So I'm hearing in that that there's a home base somewhere. So the home base needs to be well stocked so that when we come home, because we had to or decided to, we have most of our needs met there as well. So that's the basic home preparedness that we talk about, family preparedness we talk about all the time with a little bit more into it like what is your plan for security while you're not there this is one of those situations where i would say people say you know you always say to buy buy property if you can you might be better off as a renter in this situation unless the home base is the type of thing that you're when you're not there you can airbnb that builds more resiliency into your life so that's that's really where i'm going to go with this because i don't really I don't really completely understand the question if there's something specific. Like, well, I want to make sure that uh, I don't freeze to death in Alaska, right? And you're probably not going to freeze to death. But, you know, it get pretty damn cold even the time of the year that you're, you're you know, doing trips up there or whatever. Uh, and I don't know, maybe you are doing winter trips. I, I have no idea. But that's that kind of comes, to me, that kind of comes with the territory. But, 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 again, like, the way I'm going to pull back on this is, Let's map out what is, and this is, I think this is great for everybody. Let's take this, this business out of it for a second. Let's step back and say, how do I live my life? What do I do when I get up? What do I do for work? What do I do with my time off? How much extra money do I have? How much extra money do I need for my hobbies? What do I want? What do I have that I never want to lose? What, I, what do I want to bring into my life that I don't have yet? What do I have some of but I want more of? And map all that out. 
and then say, here's how I'm going to get where I want to go, and here's how I'm going to keep from falling too far backwards. And that systems-level thinking, now we're in the permaculture design for your life, is how you handle that. And you'll find that it doesn't matter then what you do. Because if you're a truck driver, you're going to shore up your security and resiliency while you're on the road in your truck, and you're going to shore up your security and resiliency for the home base you're leaving behind. Whether it's a wife or a husband that, that doesn't have you when you're not there, or whether it's an empty house. And the, the, the truck driver like that, that's a single person, if they have a dog, it's probably going to be a traveling dog. You're not going to leave your dog at home for a week at a time with no one to take care of it. You're probably not in a place where it makes a lot of sense to be a dog owner. When I was single, even though I didn't travel much, I didn't own it. As much as I love dogs, I didn't own a dog. The years that I, when I first moved here to Texas, I worked incredibly long hours, it didn't, and I've lived in apartments. It didn't seem fair. So a dog would have been an improper design element in my life. If I wanted an animal, I would have had a cat, and I'm not a big fan of indoor cats because I don't like litter boxes. So it would have made me unhappy. So it would have been an improper design element in my life. If I was traveling around as a photograph photography guide, then I probably wouldn't have a dog unless that dog really enhanced the trip. Like if it was a traveling dog that loves everybody and it's there and it can carry a little bit of gear and then that maybe that. So I would, I would, it, but then it's one more mouth to feed, et cetera. So maybe it chases away wildlife. So maybe I don't want, see what I'm saying? You got to, that's how you think of your entire existence. What do I do? How do I do it? What do I want that I don't have? How do I get that stuff? What do I have that I never want to lose? How do I prevent from losing it? Or how do I set things up where if I do lose it, I can get it back? You know, preparedness for you, insurance. I don't know what type of insurance you carry for something like this, but it's probably worth looking into. Um, how you invest your money. And how you, but the big thing for me is how do I make sure that I keep, that I have a, a list of people that want to be my client and keep coming back for more? And you were mentioning social media. I think that what you're doing, obviously Instagram and Pinterest, those are your, man, and, and I think even short videos and stuff like that as well. And I would, if I were doing this business, I would do short little videos that explain how I got the picture I got. So you post this amazing picture on Instagram and then follow that. You know, Instagram is your minute for a video. And, you know, stand there with like selfie mode with the image behind you. This is what I did. This is why this picture looks the way that it does. You want to learn to take pictures like that. You want to catch, capture moments like that. Come spend a week with me in the wilderness in Alaska, and I'll make sure that you do. That, to me, is a way to turn that, that media outreach into an inflow of clients. I hope that helps. I'm not sure if that's what you were asking But that's the best I can do, and I love your business because it sounds a lot like something I suggested more than a time or two. That brings us to the end of another show. I want to remind you guys, if you want to support the show and the work that we do, there's a couple ways to do that. One's become a member. I talk about it all the time, so I'll just say if you're not a member yet, consider becoming one because you'll save enough money to pay for your membership, and that just makes financial sense. You can learn more at the survivalpodcast.com by clicking on the Members tab. Next up, you can always support us the quick, painly, e painless, easy way. 
by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And I always have items up of the day for review for you guys today. Today I have the Cable Matters 6 Outlet Wall Mount Surge Protector. I love this thing. I love this thing. I love this thing. I love this thing. What you do is you plug it into an existing wall outlet. And now instead of having two outlets, you have six plus two USB ports. It's 17 bucks. And if that was all that it was, that would be great. Now, you can kind of install it, I guess you would call it temporarily, by just plugging it in. Or you can take the screw and the wall plate off and put it on there, and there's a screw that goes through it, and it holds it there. So when you unplug something from this, it won't pull out of the outlet. So it can work either way. So that's good. Um, it also has a surge protector built into it. So it protects your devices. Now, here's some reasons I love this thing. One... My wife gets those little foofy flu scented plug-in air freshener things and plugs them in everywhere. And they plug into the bottom outlet and cover the top. You can't, it, it, they take the whole damn outlet up and I can't plug my shit in. Well, now she can have the left side and I still got more outlets. So I can still plug my coffee grinder in and, 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 and grind my coffee in the morning and I don't have to unplug this scented thing and then it falls over and all the oil comes out of it and I'm unhappy. So I like that. Um, it also has a little light on it. You plug it in, a little green light comes on the top of it. This is actually about the only legitimate negative reviews on Amazon because people say it's too bright. I wouldn't put this in my bedroom. But if I have one plugged in in the hallway and I get up in the middle of the night because I want to go get a drink or something like that, I don't bust my toe. It's a, a valid, low, and it's not super bright, but it, you know, I think many people could sleep with it in their bedroom. It wouldn't bother them. I, when I go to bed at night... I go put a like a shirt over the freaking VCR so the clock light doesn't bother me. But you know, it's up to you. But it's just a great product. It gives you your your outlets back when someone takes them away with plugging too much crap into them. And I love the USB ports because like there's times like if I'm cooking in the kitchen, I'm listening to music or podcasts or something like that. If my phone's low on power, I can plug it in and set it right there on the counter. Instead of over at her charging station, so you know I've got stuff on my hands or whatever, I can just kind of wipe my finger off and hit the the button on Pandora to go to the next song or whatever. So it's it's great with that. They're good high speed charging ports as well. Check it out, you'll like it. Remember everything on T Spaz. I own it, I use it, spent my money on it, and I do it again, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. With that, let's wrap the show up today. We have a song of the day from Bruce Springsteen. And uh, this, we're instilling kind of songs about school, at least school as a part of a life in the song. And the song is called Growing Up. This song actually was what made Bruce Springsteen. This is what got him signed with a real record label. It's also when the band became the E Street Band. They needed a name for him when they signed him, and they just figured that out then. Uh, a lot of people know that. But what this song is really about is just... Well, kind of being like I was, I guess, and how many of us are in school. Uh, rebellious. Don't really want to go along with the rules. Don't really want to do what we're told just because we're told to do it. We have our own way of thinking. And I think this is one of the flaws in our educational system. There needs to be a pathway for people like that. We are not ever going to fit in the existing paradigm. And I don't really care about me because I'm done. I got through this. I grew up. It's like the song says. Think about all the children in the future. That many won't will be 
the type of person that I and, and, and Sula Prees, who talked about this recently, are, and just, it would just be like, that's who we are, man. Yeah. But there are others who will be that type of person but won't have quite the personality trait to just accept it as who they are and will always judge themselves as not good enough because they didn't fit in. They're going to be the fish that was asked to climb a tree and, and judges itself for being incapable when it really wants to swim. So I think there's a lot to that. I like this song. This is one of those songs I, I listen to it, I'm I don't really like it. And then I, oh, I like it, and I'm, I'm really not sure. I, I love the message in it. Uh, but the sound of it was one, is one of those ones I kind of go back and forth on. But uh, good song, good message. And I think that it's a common trait in the TSP community, as I've met many of y'all, to not quite be the peg that wants to go in the hole that someone pounds them into and to be, well, just a bit rebellious in that. That's really a great way to live the show credo, and that is building a better well, life if times get tough or like even if they don't. Midnight. Suspended in my masquerade And I combed my hair that was just right And commanded the night brigade I was hoping the plane had crossed by the rain And I walked on a crooked crutch I strolled all along to a fall I thought Came out with my soul untouched I hid in the cloud and Sit down, I stood up Ooh, up. The flag of piracy flew from my mast My sails were set wing to wing I had a jukebox graduate for first mate She couldn't sail, but she sure could slay in the stratosphere and you know it's really hard to hold your breath swear I lost everything I ever loved to fear I was a cosmic kid in full costume dress 